Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 16. Um, Wow. Praise the Lord. Amen. That was good. That was real good. Um, I'm thinking maybe we need to put these two on the road, you know. I mean, well, Keith, because we just don't want him around. But Renee, she can get out there and, you know. Man, that was awesome. That was really powerful, guys. Um, I pray that, that you have lifted up from every part of you just expression of thankfulness to God this morning. Um, what Pastor Greg said is so true that we can identify these different titles, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We can, we can say that he is Redeemer, Savior, and all these things. Uh, but man, sometimes they can just get to be titles that we just say. Uh, maybe that's not true of you. I know it's true of me that I've just, and when you hear these things so much, you can just kind of fall into that rut of just, yeah, of course he's King of Kings. And we just, I mean, it's just, of course he is. But how our life is affected when we really honestly believe that. Like that he is not just in word, king of kings. We get so caught up in all this fear and concern and worry of what's going on around us. Man, he's either Lord of all or he's not. And so this morning, I pray that if anything that you've been reminded that your God is greater than the grave and death and sin and hell. And if he can overcome those things and he can resurrect Jesus Christ from the grave and then resurrect you and I from our sinful state into new life, then, then, then what should we fear in this life? The answer is nothing. There's nothing that that can come against us in this world that God has not already overcome. Not he will overcome, he has overcome. And so this morning, I pray that your faith has been renewed in the reality of God's power, not just to do this or that miracle in your life in a momentary thing or a healing of those things, which, which of course God can do those things, but in the greater reality that God has overcome even death. And he extends to us this free gift of salvation. Mark chapter 16. Uh, man, it's been so good to worship this morning so far. And I want to get into the word and, and just unpack this passage just a little bit here. Obviously, it is a resurrection passage. It's a passage that's very familiar to Easter Sunday. But I want to read through here. And I want to talk about some of the things that we see being a surprise to those that arrive at the tomb, and then also how we are surprised by Easter as well. So Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, if you would join me in, in God's word. It says this, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Do you think this was important to them? Do you think they wanted to make this an emphasis to be there as soon as possible? It says this in verse 3, And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, and it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were frightened. And he said unto them, Be not frightened. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, the place where they laid him. 
But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, that there, that there shall ye see him as he said unto you. I can't help but note that ending of verse 7. As he said unto you. You know what that tells me? God knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus Christ told the disciples, this is what is going to happen. And God fulfilled what he said would happen. This, wasn't a, this shouldn't have been, I should say, a surprise to them because he told them all along, this is what's going to take place. I must be crucified. I must be turned over to them, but I will, but I will rise again. I want to unpack and just see some of the surprises that those visitors of the tomb that first morning discovered and then talk about how we are surprised as well. So let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, as we've read your word and we've declared the truth that we find therein, we ask that your word would be affirmed in our hearts and minds. We ask that as only you can, Holy Spirit, that you would work in and amongst us. Lord, that you would take this time that we've set aside. Lord, it seems so, so minuscule, so small that we set aside on a Sunday morning, a mere hour and a half to worship you and to spend time with you. And yet we stand in awe of the sheer magnitude of what you offer to us, which is life eternal. But Lord, in this time that we've set aside, we've come together as the body of Christ to to worship you, to lift you up. We pray that we would be focused on you. Lord, for the one this morning that is distracted by something, it could be something serious in their life, a concern, a, a fear, a health concern, maybe something going on with a loved one, loss of a loved one or somebody that we care for, a job concern, a family concern, a relationship issue. Lord, I pray that we would not try to leave those things at the door, as some have suggested, because you don't ask us to leave them out there. You ask us to bring them and lay them before you, to cast all our cares, all the things that cause us anxiety, to cast all of it before you, not because... We can do it in our own once we leave it there. But because you say that we can cast our cares before you because you care for us. And when we do that, you will exchange those anxieties, those burdens, those weights with your comfort and with your peace. Lord, the circumstance may not change. The situation may not get, quote, better in our mind. Things may actually seem to get worse. But that's why we don't trust the circumstance we find ourselves in. We trust the God over all things. And so I pray that we would just worship you, just honor you and lift you up as we receive what you have for us. And we just celebrate the amazing grace that you've extended to us. Father, be with anyone here this morning who does not know you as Savior. Maybe they've gone to church. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they've been baptized as an infant. Maybe they were raised in a very ungodly home and they've come from a very dysfunctional background. I don't know where everyone is coming from this morning, but Lord, to you, if they're here and hearing this, that they can receive the gospel. They can know that they can be saved, Lord, not by doing certain things or being religious or going to church, but by receiving the truth that you died on the cross for our sins, were buried and rose again, and that anyone, anyone who places their faith and trust in you can be saved of their sins and find eternal life, being spared from eternity in hell. Again, Father, by your grace, this is possible. And so I pray that if there's somebody here in that way, somebody watching online, that you would prick their hearts and open their minds to the reality of their sin, the need of forgiveness, and that 
the availability of grace. Lord, in all these things, we lift you up and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this moment here, Mark chapter 6, pretty popular passage, but it's a pretty incredible moment when you think about it. And I have to ask this question because when I read scripture, this is what I do. I tend to read scripture and I think about what if I was in their shoes? What if I was going through that? I don't know if you do this. Um, it's funny, you know, you think about stories like Abraham and Isaac or, or the disciples or different things or Moses or Noah. You know, the first time God spoke to Noah and wanted him to build this giant boat. Uh, just what goes through your mind? What do you think about there? The, this, the fears, the concerns, the doubt. But I think about this story here and I read this when they show up and they find the empty tomb. I always have to think what was going through their mind? Like, like what kind of things were they thinking? What kind of outcomes were they imagining? Do you think they just, I mean, we know they were surprised. We'll talk about it in a minute here, but they obviously didn't just jump to the reality that, oh, okay, he did what he said he was going to do. So there's all kinds of things that run through their mind, but it's an incredible moment that God grants to these individuals. It's also worth noting who are the first people to discover the empty tomb? The disciples or a couple of women? A couple of women. And we see here their names are listed for us. Mary Magdalene and then Mary. This Mary, the, the one mentioned here, is not the Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not um, uh, Mary the, the, uh, from Bethany that we read about in other passages. This would be Mary, uh, the mother of James the Less, is one of the disciples. He's also known as James the son of Alphaeus. So this is a mother of one of the disciples of Christ who comes to the tomb with Mary Magdalene. And they are the first witnesses of the empty tomb. They're the first ones to find out and discover that Jesus is not there. Now, this is interesting, too, because at this time in this culture, the testimony of women was not seen as valuable as that of men. So if a woman testified of something, it wasn't seen as the same value or the same weight as if a man testified to something. Okay, I'm not going to assume why. You can let your imaginations run with that and why you might think that to be the case. Uh, it may have something to do with sometimes when you ask a witness a question of what did you see, you want the details. But you don't want all the details. Amen. And so sometimes you might get more details if it's women than men. I'm just saying. I'm not, I'm not saying that's always the case. But it's like, you know, if you ask a man, let's just be real for a minute. If you ask a man, hey, I heard so-and-so had a baby. What, what, was, what happened? How, how did it go? What, what, what happened with the delivery? That man will tell you, yes, they had a baby and it's a boy. Period. If you ask a woman, hey, I heard they had a baby. How did it go? What happened with the delivery? Oh, my goodness. It was a little boy, and he was so cute, and he weighed this much and this long and this, and it was this time. Now, see, I used to think, why do women care so much about that? But I figured it out as a parent now and talking with Sandra. Women love to hold on to certain aspects of delivery, namely how long the labor was. Amen, ladies? Okay? It's how long did you put me through turmoil? So I can use this when you're 16, and you want to complain about that. Do you know I was in labor for 26 hours with you? And you're going to complain about. So I get it now. I understand. It took me a while to get it. But I finally understand why that may be the case. Here we see in this case, though, these women that show up at the tomb. The reason I want to emphasize that it was women who discovered the empty tomb first. And the importance that it's recorded for us. It's recorded for us that it was women. Now, if you're the disciples... And you're just making this stuff up. This didn't really happen. It's not really true. You're just kind of fabricating this whole thing to add weight to your religion. 
you're going to look at the culture and say, okay, what's going to be the most believable scenario? What's going to be the most believable outcome that people would just receive this and take this and believe it with, without any doubt or any question? You're not going to have women showing up to the tomb first. You're going to have men show up because in that culture, men's testimony was valued just a little bit greater. But I love that it's recorded for us how it actually happened. So why do I point that out? Because that means, if you really think about it, this is not a fabricated story. This is recorded this way because that's how it happened. That's how it transpired. And so the authors of God's word, Mark here, records just as it happened. That's a powerful reality to realize that the disciples weren't even the first ones at the tomb on the third day. The ones who spent the most time with Jesus were not the ones that were there at daybreak. And so what should we take away from this passage? I want to look at a few things here. A few examples of some of the surprises that we see here. In verses 1 and 5, we see that they are surprised. It says here in verse 1, And on the Sabbath was passed, they came and brought sweet spices, and they might come and anoint him. So they're coming to anoint Christ, who they believe to be still in the tomb. Verse 5, And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were frightened. When you see this here, they anticipated Jesus would still be in the tomb. They anticipated Christ would still be dead and buried in the tomb. They brought the spices to complete the anointing that Joseph and Nicodemus had begun earlier. They're coming to finalize this process of ceremonial ritual to, to anoint the body of Christ. They experienced three different surprises in just a few short moments. The first surprise they note was that the stone was rolled away. Do you guys notice that in scripture? It actually says they're coming to the temple or to the tomb and they're going, who's going to move the stone for us? How are we going to get this thing open? How are we going to move the stone? It's very great. So this was not like a small entrance and a small stone. This was a large stone that was anticipated to be too heavy for these women to move. But they show up and what happens? It's already rolled away. And isn't it amazing that when things seem impossible, those weights that seem like you just can't bear them any longer, but that through Christ and through God, even the heaviest weight can be lifted. Even the heaviest object can be moved by his grace for his glory. What else do we find here as way of surprises? First, the stone was rolled away. So they're already kind of shocked by that. Next, we read that in Mark's account, they meet an angel who's sitting in the tomb. Now, I love that because they show up and here's this guy just sitting there. And I love that God made a point of placing that angel in that tomb at that moment. They actually meet two angels. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Uh, Mark focuses on the encounter with one of the angels. But in Luke 24.4, we see that he actually acknowledges there were two angels present. So in Mark 24.4, he acknowledges there were two angels in, or in Luke. In Mark uh, 16, he emphasizes one of those two angels and the interactions that they have. Again, this is not a contradiction because if Mark says there was one, is it a contradiction that Luke says there was two? No, because as long as Luke includes there was at least one, they're both in agreement. So here we see this happening. So the stone was rolled away. There's a meeting with these angels. And then lastly, the message the angels proclaimed surprised the visitors to the tomb. The message is simply this, verse 7, or verse 6, I'm sorry. Behold, he is risen. He is not 
here. Behold the place where they laid him. And I love that. He's saying he's not here. And you can look. You can come in. You can see the empty tomb. I love this because when we travel, if you travel to the Holy Land, to Israel, and you want to see all the sites that Jesus went to, you can go to all these different locations and you can see different things recorded for us in Scripture. But then you got to figure out where the tomb was. And what's interesting is when you go to the garden tomb, they can't tell you for sure that's where Jesus' tomb really was. And the reason is because there's no body there. They say, this, we think this is the tomb where he was laid. We, we don't know for sure. And what's amazing, in 2,000 years, every skeptic, every critic has tried to figure out how to debunk that reality. They've tried to say, oh, we found this over here and this, this chamber over here. And, you know, every single time, I remember there was one time I was watching the History Channel. And it was like a two-hour, hour-and-a-half special about supposedly they found the bones of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty big deal. We found his bones. If you found the bones of Christ, that means he is not risen. And the Bible actually records for us, you go to Corinthians, Paul says, if he isn't risen, then we're of, most, of all men most miserable. Because we believe our sins are forgiven, but we're really in our sin and we're still going to pay for those sins. Because if he is not risen, then there is no gospel. And so I'm, I saw this on, cha- on the channel one day, on the, on the guide, and I was like, that's a pretty big deal. If they really found the bones of Christ, I'm kind of surprised I'm just now hearing about it, but this could change everything. And you watch this hour and a half special, all these interviews, right? All these really academic looking people with all these titles and really cool beards, which obviously means they're pretty intelligent. And so all these things are happening. Right? All these different encounters, and they're doing all these studies and dating of this and the dating of that, and they're digging through these little tunnels. And I remember watching, like, okay, get to the part where you confirm it's the bones of Christ. And they get all the way to the end of this show. And you guys know how it is, right? They set it up, and then they go to a commercial, and then they come back, and it's 20 minutes of nothing, really. And then they set it up again, and it's at the very end, you find out. Do you know what the conclusion to this hour and a half special was? They believe they found the bones of someone who passed away in first century Israel that could have been named Jesus, but we don't really know for sure because the the wording on the box was a little skewed and not 100% clear, but they could have had the name of Jesus and this may be the bones of somebody who died around that time. That's it. That's all they got. By the way, you do know that that name Jesus was not his name of divinity, right? Right? What does Jesus represent in the name Jesus Christ? That's his humanity. That's, that's the name like Old Testament Joshua. See, the, the name that scripture emphasizes as far as recognizing his divinity is he is the Christ. Right? Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the anointed one. And so could it be there was another man with the name Jesus in first century Israel? Could be. The fact that they found some guy's bones in a box in some cave somewhere... Does that mean that's the Jesus of Nazareth? No. Does it even say Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? No. There's no identity to this person. So here we understand that when they see this tomb is empty, it affirms the reality that Christ is not here. He is risen. Kind of an interesting point here with Mary Magdalene. She gets a a unique encounter with Christ. Jesus actually appears to her personally after the disciples left the tomb. You can go over to John's gospel, John chapter 20. We're going to go to another passage here in John 20. We're going to look at a couple of things here and then go back um, to Mark. 
before we end. But John chapter 20, and again, it's amazing how we see the four Gospels. Um, God keeps the individual personality of the author intact, and they record it from their point of view. So some Gospels emphasize some aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. Some emphasize others. John's Gospel records more about the crucifixion than any other Gospel. Um, However, Luke's Gospel contains more parables of Jesus' teachings than any other Gospel. So it's not... We're not going to read the exact same thing in every gospel because certain authors record different aspects of the ministry as God led them to. Uh, Again, it does not contradict each other. It just merely emphasizes different points of the ministry of Christ. And so John chapter 20, we see here in verses 11 through 18, it says here, But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels. So again, we see these two angels. In white, sitting the one hand, on, I'm sorry, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because thou have taken, they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things unto her. Notice that she doesn't recognize Jesus initially, and she doesn't even fully understand the message of the angels about Jesus' resurrection. However, when Jesus revealed himself to her, everything changed. Notice that Jesus reveals himself to her, and in that moment, everything changed. She had heard the message. She had seen the tomb. She saw that it was empty, but there was still this not fully understanding what was going on. Not really fully understanding where Jesus was. I think of Thomas and his kind of back and forth with Jesus when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, you know the way to Thomas and to the disciples. And Thomas says, we don't know the way. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. You see, Thomas was always asking questions to make sure where Jesus was, he was going to be. And in a similar sense, Mary doesn't fully understand the weight of all that's happening here. However, once she has this encounter with Jesus, their fear, and we're going to say their fear, not only Mary's, but the other women that were there, their fear and sorrow turned into joyful expression. When you read here in verse 18 of John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had been with the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. There's this joyful expression. There's this desire to communicate the truth of all that God has made known. After meeting the risen Christ, we also see this in Matthew 28, 8. The women that were once afraid are now joyful and went to the disciples to tell them, I love in Mark sixteen seven. we have to note this as well. Speaking of those that had a change coming encounter or having an encounter with the risen Christ. In Mark sixteen seven, the angel specifically names Peter as one to tell that Jesus will meet them. 
I, I love that. He tells Mary and the women, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. Now, this is interesting because this is after the denial of Christ. Peter has denied Christ three times. He did the same thing that Jesus said he would do. He did exactly what Jesus prophesied he would do. And yet here, before they have this encounter, we know that Peter and Jesus have this beautiful encounter, right? Where he says, do you, do you love me? And he encourages them to feed his sheep. And that beautiful back and forth we see in John, I believe it's in John 21. And yet before that, even before Jesus made it to Peter and made it to Galilee, he made a point of saying, now make sure you tell Peter that I'll meet him as well. Do you know why I love that? Because sometimes when we, when we drift in our faith, we, we don't do what God asks us to do. We, we even turn our back on him. When, when God calls us into repentance and the spirit begins to convict, one of the lies we tell ourselves is he would never want me to come back. I've gone too far. He could never forgive me. He doesn't want a relationship with me. How could he ever use me? And yet he made a point of saying to Mary, make sure you tell Peter, I want to see him too. Now, some have suggested Peter's most likely thinking, I'm in trouble, I'm going to be rebuked, I'm going to be disciplined by Christ. But I don't believe that's the emphasis that's given here. I think it's Jesus making sure Peter knows, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. Peter, I'm not done. There's more to do and I'm going to use you to do it. I have to note as well for not only these women, but also the disciples. What do you think the three days were like between the crucifixion and the resurrection? And just the fear. I mean, some of them most likely were thinking they could be next to be hanging on a cross. We believe this to be true because when Jesus shows up to the disciples and they're in the room, it actually says the door was locked. And it's emphasized that Jesus just put himself in the room. He didn't need to go through a door. He's in a body that can be spiritually, that can move that way. But it also shows us there was some fear. They kept the door locked because they don't know who's coming for them to put them on a cross. I mean, remember, these are the men that Peter was recognized almost instantly just by his language, by his accent that he was with Christ. And other people said, yeah, yeah, you were with Jesus. At this point, some of the disciples are questioning, do we really want to be known to have been with Jesus? There's fear. Imagine the heartache that they're experiencing of losing a loved one, someone they spent three and a half years with, lived with, had meals with, just built this relationship with. The guilt of knowing they didn't fully invest in all that Christ tried to teach them while he was with them. All these things, all these emotions. While those three days felt like an eternity, as God had promised, Sunday still came. And as it was true with us every single morning, when the sun dawned on that third day, everything was different. Everything was changed. So we see how they were surprised, how they were shocked by the resurrection, by the wonder of Easter Sunday. But I want to ask a question about how are we surprised by the resurrection? I think one of the things we're shocked with is that he is no longer there, but risen. Many skeptics will attack the reality of the resurrection in our world today. It is, it is hard for us to even imagine, let alone believe that somebody was dead for multiple days and rose again. One of the reasons is because we don't see that, right? We don't see that today. So it's hard to believe Many skeptics will attack the reality of the resurrection. Some of the attacks they use, just a couple to give you an example. One of them is that the disciples stole the body. The disciples snuck in in the middle of the night, moved the stone, and stole the body away. The problem is that when you read in Scripture, it's believed that, that Caesar, or I mean that um, there would have been guards there, placed there, Roman guards, to protect the tomb. 
that the seal was placed there to keep it shut and closed. These disciples, these fishermen would not have overcome them and would not have been able to get in. The other reality is the women are the first ones there. And they go and tell the disciples. How do the disciples respond to Jesus' body being gone? They're so shocked they run after the tomb. They, they beat each other to the tomb to see it. The other thing we have to question is if it's true the disciples stole the body and if they really just made it all up and it was just to kind of promote themselves and their religion, then why is it that every one of the disciples died a martyr's death? Why is it that church history records that even John, John the beloved, he ends up isolated on the island of Patmos to live out the rest of his days in isolation? Why would you do that if you knew it was a lie? Why would you be Peter and allow yourself to be crucified upside down if you knew it was a lie and you just stole the body? Don't you think at some point they would go, okay, 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 okay. You got us. You got us. We, we, we took the body. It just doesn't make any sense. One of the other kind of attacks that are brought against the reality of the resurrection is the hallucination theory. This is that they thought they just saw Jesus, but they didn't really see Jesus. It was just an hallucination. You just wanted to see it, so you saw it. It's like seeing Elvis at Kroger. He's not really there. Well, maybe he is. I've never seen Elvis at Kroger. Okay? It's just this hallucination. You say you saw it, but you really didn't. The problem is that, while of course history records people seeing things that weren't really there and records people saying, well, I saw this person there and and they didn't really see them there or it was a misunderstanding or they thought they saw something they didn't. When you read scripture, it's amazing how much accuracy is given to the accounts of those who specifically saw Jesus. I mean, names are given. 1 Corinthians 15, there's a list of names that are given of those that saw the risen Christ. The Gospels record individuals that saw the risen Christ. Obviously, the disciples saw the risen Christ. Mary Magdalene saw the risen Christ. They saw him at different times in different locations, different areas. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, it actually says he was seen by over 500 at one time. That's a mass hallucination if it didn't really happen. The other interesting thing to note is that in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says that, and he lists all these names, and he says about the 500, he actually says who the greater number of them are still alive to this day. Meaning, you can go ask them. You can go have a conversation with them, and they will tell you what they saw. One of the other attacks against the reality of the resurrection is that they merely went to the wrong tomb. That Mary and Mary Magdalene and the disciples, they just merely went to the wrong tomb. They got confused. It was, sun was coming up. They weren't really sure where the tomb was. And they just went to an empty tomb because that was the tomb that was, they thought was the tomb of Christ. But let me ask you a question. If this was your loved one, if this was somebody that you longed to, to see again, you just missed them so much and you, you mourned for, for days over the lossing of this friend, the loss of this friend, Would you go to the wrong gravestone? Would you go to the wrong cemetery? Would you forget where the tomb was? If this was your loved one, would you forget, wait, where was he buried again? Where was she buried again? I know that tombstone's around here somewhere. No, odds are if it's your loved one, you're going to go right to the right spot. You know where they're buried. It's silliness that these things have been suggested. And obviously nothing really holds weight in any of these. The truth is there will always be skeptics because the natural man cannot understand the things of God or the things of the cross. And the Bible actually says to natural man who have not received Christ, the things of the cross are actually foolishness. It's foolishness that you would ever believe that some man died on the cross 2,000 years ago, was buried in a tomb and rose again. 
However, I choose not because evidence tells me, because archaeology tells me or history tells me. I choose because the word of God reveals to me by faith that God is risen, that Jesus is risen from the dead. I choose to believe by faith the word of God, no matter what man says. You see, God's word is true, even when it doesn't make sense to our human minds. So we're surprised by the resurrection. It's not something we would expect. But also we're surprised and shocked after meeting the risen Christ. We understand the message clearly that he is risen. We can hear about the gospel over and over again. But until we have an encounter with Christ and receive his gift of salvation, we will never know the fullness of his gospel. You can hear the gospel over and over again. Some of you, let's just be real for a minute. If, if, if we can take a moment and just kind of do a little evaluation of ourselves. Some of you have grown up in church. And some of you have sat in church service after church service and VBS and junior church and Sunday school and, and Awana or Word of Life. You've sat through gospel presentation after gospel presentation. And the reality is you still don't know Christ. But you know the gospel. There's people in this country today that I could go up to on the street and say, tell me the gospel. And they'd say, oh yeah, that's when Jesus died for our sins and whoever believes in him doesn't go to hell. Well, have you received that for yourself? Well, I, I hope so. I think so. Are you saved? Do you know the gospel? Well, yeah, I go to church. And it's pretty quick, pretty evident. It's pretty obvious that, that just knowing the gospel, knowing the facts of the gospel does not translate to eternal life. See, they knew the story. They heard, he is risen. Amen, he is risen. But it wasn't real for them because they had not received it. So my question to all of us is, do you know the gospel factually or do you know the gospel intimately? Have you received it for yourself so that when somebody says to you, do you, do you know where you're going to go when you leave this world? You don't say, oh, I hope so. You say, oh man, I have a guarantee on God's word. I will be with him. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you fear death? No. Paul says death is gain. That to leave this world and to be with Christ is far greater. See, there's a difference between knowing of the gospel and personally knowing the gospel. It's shocking to us that he would even extend the gospel to us. The reality is once we know the gospel personally and for ourselves, our fear and sorrow become joy. Just like these at the tomb, our fear and sorrow become joy. We have peace with God which brings abundant joy in this life and the life to come. We do not fear what this life throws at us because our Savior has conquered the grave. Paul says it best. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? He declares, but thanks be to God, which gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will joyfully share the truth that we have received as these did who first visited the tomb, that we will run to others and declare to them that Christ is not dead. He is risen and God offers his gospel to them that they can know the forgiveness of sins. You see this Easter morning, I have to ask you, are you surprised by the resurrection? Are you surprised by the reality that he rose from the dead? Does it sound just so foreign to you? Is it hard to believe? Do you have all these questions about, well, what about this and what about that? Let me just invite you to take all of those questions and lay them before his feet. He invites you into that relationship. 
But let me also remind you that just because you can't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. I have no idea how when I flip a switch back here, that lights up. Now, Matt does. He knows how that works. I hope he knows how that's working, but he does for a living. I mean, I don't understand how that works. But does it change my belief that when I flip the switch, the light comes on? Do I have to know how that works to see it work? See, so many people say, well, yeah, but how did Jesus and how did God? There's things I don't understand about all that God has done. By the way, there's a lot of things I don't understand about what God does. But it doesn't change that by faith, God says that through Christ, I have eternal life. I don't have to understand all the details of how that takes place, but I can know by faith that it has happened and will happen because I trust his word. So this morning, this Easter morning, my greatest challenge to all of us is, have you received Christ? I'm not asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, have you been baptized? I'm not asking, have you memorized this or that prayer? Have you gone to confession? Have you been confirmed? I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking you a very specific question that I believe God is asking as well of you. Do you know Christ? Matthew tells us in the Gospels, Jesus, or Matthew records Jesus' words here. Jesus says, on that day, when we stand before him, on that day, there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. See, there's a lot of people that are going to church this morning, and I'm so thankful for it. All over our country, churches will be filled, and amen for that. But there's so many people that are just going to church. They don't really know Jesus. They know of him. They can tell you some Bible stories. They try to be a good person. They do good things. But they don't know him. And my greatest concern for you is that you will stand before Christ one day, having gone to a lot of church services, having done a lot of good things, gotten some baptism waters wet, and, and you just, you did the motions. You wrote some tithe checks, but you didn't know him. Do you know him this morning? And if you would say, oh, man, I just, I don't, I don't know that I do then it's, it's, it's so simple. It's about believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, confessing those sins, asking him to save us, and then receiving that gift of salvation, asking him to be the Lord of your life. If Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it from the grave, and he did that, he fulfilled that promise, then when he tells you and I, that you trust in me and you will have everlasting life, we can believe that promise because he fulfilled every other promise that we read in scripture. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. I'm going to ask that right there where you are, that with your heads bowed and just as you begin to pray, that you would just ask God by the working of his Holy Spirit to, to work in your heart and mind. My plea for you is that you would know Christ. The Bible is so clear that in this life, we've been given time for repentance. That God has granted to us a time in this life where we can make a choice. We either choose Christ. We choose his salvation that he offers to us freely, not of anything of ourselves, but all of him. 
Salvation is all of God because it's all of grace. But we respond by faith and receive the gift of salvation he offers to us as he works in our hearts and minds to make us aware of our need of a Savior. We receive that gift of salvation and we live our lives for him, imperfect, of course, still flawed at times and and we trip up and we still fail at times, of course, but we keep our eyes on him because he is holding on to us. We live for him and for his glory because he saved us. Or we can make the choice to deny Christ, to turn our backs from him, to think we can do it on our own, to think I don't need him. I'm not that bad a person. I don't need to be forgiven of anything. I haven't done anything that bad. We live in a pride and rebellious attitude towards God and we smile and go about our days building our kingdoms out of all of our possessions and meanwhile we're building it on sinking sand. There's no foundation. And one day this life will end. We'll step from this world and we'll be before him and we'll be judged. It doesn't matter whether we want to be judged or feel he's able to judge us. He is the judge. And we'll be weighed. We'll have to answer for our sins. And if we don't know Christ, there's only one penalty for our sin, and that is separation from God in a place called hell. But if we know Christ, we'll be forgiven and free, ushered into his joy and his peace. So my challenge to all of us this morning is, what decision have you made? Have you chosen Christ or have you chosen self? Father, I pray that you would help us to have understanding in all these things, that you would lead, guide, and direct, that we would know you and know your resurrection power. Lord, when they met you and realized who you were, everything changed. And that's what you want to do for us today. You want to change everything, starting on the inside or starting on the inside and working it out. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all that has been said and done, and that you will continue to work. Help us to respond to you and to your love and to your grace. Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we have a time of invitation, a time for you to respond? Maybe you want to come and just say, Lord, I'm just going to thank you for the resurrection. I'm just going to praise you for your goodness and grace that you have conquered all. Thank you for offering your salvation to us. Maybe you'd come and pray. If something else is going on in your life, you want to ask God to work in that situation. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to what he is doing in your life?